0: I invite you this morning to Paul's letter to the Philippians, the second chapter. Philippians chapter 2. We will read beginning at verse 1 through verse 11, but the focus will be on verses 5 through 11 today. Philippians chapter 2. Begin reading at verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ...
1: Our Father,
0: we rejoice to know that our sins are forgiven, and we pray now, Father, that we would grasp more fully why this is so. May we glory in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. We have considered from our proposed confession, the Scriptures, and God, and man. And now we come to the fourth article of our proposed confession, salvation. We believe that the salvation of sinners is holy of grace through the mediatorial offices of the Son of God, who by the appointment of the Father freely took upon Him our nature, yet without sin. He honored the divine law by His personal obedience and by His death made a full atonement for our sins. Having risen from the dead and descended, He is now enthroned in heaven. By uniting in His glorified person the greatest sympathies with the divine perfection, He is in every way qualified to be a suitable, compassionate, and all-sufficient Savior. The paragraph covers so very much in a very short statement. You could convert it, if you would, to something of a catechetical approach, a question followed with a multi-part answer. The question would be, how is the gracious salvation of sinners accomplished? The response, through the mediatorial offices of the Son of God, He freely joined humanity to His deity yet without sin. He actively obeyed God's law in its fullness. He passively obeyed God's law by becoming our substitute and atoning for our sins. He was raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. He continues to unite human sympathy with divine perfections. And he is qualified to be our only and all-sufficient Savior. The text we look at today is part of Paul's letter to the Philippians, one of the prison epistles. Paul writes this while imprisoned. A letter that begins with Paul admitting that there are those out there who were glad he was imprisoned. They didn't like him, there's a conflict. And out of that, Paul does something I think extraordinary in that he says, You know what? They preach Christ, I preach Christ. As long as Christ is preached, I'm good with that. Now, folks, that's a generosity of spirit that is a little difficult to imagine. And a generosity of attitude that's extraordinary that, okay, I'm in prison and they're glad, but as long as Jesus is preached, I'm good. It's a letter that includes a vigorous defense of the gospel of grace in the third chapter. It's a letter that pleads for unity. You see in the early part of the second chapter, you see it again in chapter 4 where he pleads with two women in particular to be reconciled to one another. So it's a letter that is kind of built around some conflicts in an early church setting there in Philippi. And yet in that context of that kind of a letter, the word that shows up as much as any other word, in fact more than most, is this joy, and rejoice. Now how is it that in the middle of a letter that's addressing church conflict that Paul over and over again talks about joy and rejoicing? It is because of the Christocentric nature of Paul's outlook. He is centered on Christ and what Christ accomplishes. You see, when our... Confession speaks of salvation. If you read the article closely, it speaks of a person. Not primarily about an idea or a way of living or a list of rules or anything else, but rather about a person. Now, my friends, this is always, I believe, a danger to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that we make Too little of Christ and too much of ourselves. Over and over and over again. Too little of Christ, too much of us. If you don't focus in the right place, bad things happen. And I put a finer point than that on it. If you don't focus on the right person, you're in trouble. Salvation is entirely found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This text focuses on two things regarding Christ. His humiliation and His exaltation. It breaks very easily there. And you can follow that quite readily in the text. First, the humiliation of Christ. From verse 5 through verse 8. Verse 5 is the exhortation. Have the mind this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. By the way, this mind if you're a Christian actually belongs to you already. This is already part of the work of regeneration of the spirit of God changing you. This mind of Christ and it begins with humiliation. Think this which Christ thought in himself. How do you think? And then what Paul does at verse 6, it appears he takes up from the end of verse 5 all the way through verse 11 what may well have been an early Christian hymn. Now we're not sure if this is something that under the inspiration of the Spirit Paul composes in the moment as he's writing this letter to the Philippian Christians, or if rather it was one that was current kind of a song of confessional statement that was used in the early church, both its form, its meter, everything about it seems to indicate it could quite well have been an early Christian hymn. So it begins first in his humiliation with speaking about attitude. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider or count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The master became the servant. Deity takes on humanity. When it says he was in nature or form, the word there is morphe. uh, Anthropomorphic comes out of it. Made image of man, picture of man. It means to possess inwardly and display the very nature of something. Here is Paul's declaration. The second person of the Trinity is truly God. But he did not count that equality with God a thing to hold on to and never turn loose of for the sake of others. When he uses the word equality, it's a funny little Greek word, isa, I-S-A. It's the word for you mathematical sorts from which we get a description of a particular triangle, the isosceles triangle. And an isosceles triangle, for those of you who have forgotten, and that may be many of us, it is a triangle with two equal sides. He did not count his equality with God, referring to his state of existence, as something to be grasped. He didn't consider it as something to use purely for his own advantage. He took action. Here's the beginning, the attitude. He is God but he is willing to turn loose of that glory for the sake of others. Here's the action. He made himself nothing, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now what did Paul mean? when he said that the Son of God made himself nothing. Now, some say what it means is that he, he gave up some of his deity. Wrong. Okay? The second person of the Trinity, in taking on humanity, does not give up any of the essential attributes of his godhood other than the fact that the godness of him is hidden. He did not cease to be God, but he began to be man." Now, he said, well, preacher, that's, that's hard. Of course it's hard. This is God. Of whom we are speaking. How does deity take on humanity? Look at Jesus. He takes on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. He adds humanity to his deity rather than subtracting deity from his person. Now, the language seems a little vague. And I think the vagueness allows for the theology that cannot be expressed easily. It's a theology about relationships between the divine and human in Christ. And we are not given lengthy declarations of what that was like. I've read folks who want to do, let's talk about the psychology of the Son of God, of Jesus. How?
1: And with what evidence?
0: be careful that we don't try to delve into things that are deeper than what we can possibly take in. He existed originally in the form of God, but at a specific point, he became human. Paul will describe it this way in 2 Corinthians 8, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The description human likeness Stresses Jesus' humanity. This was not a way of saying Jesus wasn't truly human, but rather a way of saying he was truly human. But there's more to the story. That seventh verse, in many ways, would be a fine Christmas text. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and further, the author of life becomes subject. To death. He humbles himself. Now, let me point out, the first humiliation is from the glory of deity to becoming humanity. That is the first step of the humiliation. Remember, God is not some kind of deified man. Contra-Mormonism. And I'd say contra- most understandings of people today who want to make God just a bigger version of us. There is an entirely different category of existence when you're talking about God. So the first step of humility, he empties himself and becomes one of us. Truly one of us. Second stage, he humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, I know we,
1: we step into very deep water here.
0: How does this work? Does God, the second person of the Trinity, die? on the
1: cross? No.
0: Does the man, nature, Jesus, as human, die? Absolutely. Now, I know, how? Deep
1: breath. Let it out. We're not told how.
0: But deity cannot die. The Son of God possesses eternal life within Himself. But His death was truly death, for He was truly human. And then the focus, even death on a cross. Listen to a fellow named Malachi. Commentator who wrote on this. The impact on the Philippians would be great. No Roman could be subjected to such a death. And the Jews took it as a sign that the victim was cursed by God, right? Read that in Galatians, third chapter. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Comes right out of the book of Deuteronomy. The cross, so dear to Paul and other devout Christians, was an embarrassment to many. That in itself demonstrates the extent to which Jesus went. Humiliation becoming human. Humiliation dying. Humiliation amplified even death on a cross. Because only the worst criminals died on crosses. And only those who had the least power influence of any within Rome died on a cross, and based on the terms of the Old Covenant, everyone who hung on a tree was especially cursed by God, and Paul is not afraid of that. That probably helps us make sense in 1 Corinthians whenever he says, if anybody says Jesus is cursed, they don't do that from the Spirit of God. Because I can just imagine, think of this, Paul preaching to a Jewish audience, the coming of the Messiah, this Messiah, Jesus, right? And he's come and he's arrived and here's how he accomplishes his work of salvation. He dies on a cross and somebody in the crowd says, then he is cursed. Cursed
1: is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now that's true but true only as the substitute for sinners.
0: My friends, Christ must be seen in all of His glory descending in humiliation, leaving His glory behind for the sake of sinners. It was Richard Sibbs in his book, The Bruised Reed, Christ came down from heaven, emptied himself of majesty and tender love to souls, shall we not come down from our high conceits to do good to any poor soul? Shall man be proud after God has been humble? After we are gained to Christ ourselves, we should labor to gain others to Christ. Holy ambition and covetousness will move us to put upon ourselves the disposition of Christ, but we must put off ourselves first. My friend, we must have a Savior who steps into our world. James Boyce put it this way, if a fellow's drowning in the ocean, he might have intended to take swimming lessons, but before he can do that, he needs a lifeguard. Right? When you're drowning, all the intention of good things and swimming lessons aren't doing you a bit of good. You need a rescuer. We drown in our sins. We need a Savior who will reach down to us. The writer of Hebrews says, It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sins to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering, Hebrews 2.10. Christian, have you grasped the beauty of this? I like the way Jim Elliff put it. All the toxic waste of your life has been dumped on Jesus Christ, and he has really made propitiation for you.
1: This, the humiliation
0: of Christ. Now let's consider for a moment the exaltation of Christ. At verse 9, you have the transition, that lovely Pauline word, therefore. Remember the rule. When you see therefore, you find out what it's there for. It's looking to prior. The humiliation leads to the exaltation. In fact, when it says there uh, at verse verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted Him. You could translate that super exalted Him. So how could it be that the second person of the Trinity could be in a higher position that is super exalted. I mean, God is in all of His glory exalted, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternally, fully, completely exalted. So what does it mean that He's super exalted? Is it now? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Well, that's just weird and wrong. Let's not start a new heresy. There have been enough. It is talking about the elevation of Jesus in His humanity in a position more than ever before recognizing He could be no more God before or after but the exaltation of humanity. This to me echoes back to what we read last week in the 8th Psalm. You made Him a little lower than the angels and yet you have exalted Him to this place. And the word To believers, when Paul says, you won't deal with problems in your own midst, you won't go to your own courts, you go to pagan courts, don't you know? And if you paid attention to this, you will judge angels. Mm. That at the name, and I I love this part of it as you keep going into that ninth verse, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, you shall give him the name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins." The name Jesus, as it is connected to the incarnate second person of the Trinity, is the highest name. All that God does for us, all that God is for us, comes to us through Jesus Christ. That is why we are taught when we pray, we are to pray in the name of Jesus, our mediator, highly exalted. When the apostles heal, they healed in the name of Jesus. In fact, when they preached, they preached in the name of Jesus. Acts 4, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone and their salvation and no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He is exalted to the highest place. He is given the highest name. And He is owed the highest worship. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The bowed knee, the confessing tongue. The hymn speaks to Jesus as the
1: conqueror of all
0: First Corinthians 15, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he's accepted who's put all things in subjection under him. In other words, the Father's not subject to it. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. The author of Hebrews does it this way. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. My friend, here is really truly the test in many ways of the reality of what you profess.
1: When you hear Him,
0: when you see Him exalted, when you know who He is and what He's
1: done, is your response worship, not theory, not merely an articulation, worship. You see, my friend, we all, all shall one day worship. And
0: Christian, for those of us who are His, that glorious worship in the final day shall be, in a sense, nothing more than the glorification and extension of what we have already been doing here, right? Man, you know, that's why when folks say, well, I don't think you have to go to church to be a good Christian you obviously don't think I'm sorry is that too blunt
1: He saves you into a community
0: for the glory of his name and he calls you to worship him I'm not sure what folks who don't have any interest in worship
1: think heaven's going to be like But my friend for us, the
0: day will come when the trump shall sound. <laughs> the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And that shall be the time of the confession and the bowing of the knee. But let me point out another facet of this that I call on you to hear My friend, if you never trust him, if you never turn to him, you shall yet one day bow the knee and confess Jesus is Lord. You will worship, but you will worship as those condemned forever. Never to be in his presence of joy, only to be in the presence of suffering only to be in the presence of His justice. Every human, every created thing, every created being shall worship this one exalted by the Father. No exceptions to the rule. You walk along and you think, I'll do my own decisions, it's up to me, I'll decide if I follow this Jesus. After all, I'm sovereign over my own life. There's things I'd want to do. I'm not sure I'm on board with this. Hear what I'm saying to you, my friend. You will bow.
1: You may either bow now for everlasting
0: glory with Him and the comforting work of His Spirit in your life to know you're reconciled to God, or you will bow then to your eternal damnation with absolutely no hope. Christian, do you see this? I found this quote from Spurgeon. I haven't found the location, but it sounds Spurgeon-esque. I'm going with it. If he didn't say it, somebody else brighter than I did. And I I love this. If our sins be mountains, his love is like Noah's flood. Whoa. Now, if you're not sure about the reference, remember Noah's flood covers all the mountains, even the tallest ones. Got the imagery? My sins like mountains. His grace, his salvation, his love is like Noah's flood.
1: John will write.
0: Then I looked and I heard about the throne of the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down
1: and worshiped.
0: Christian, let us echo the chorus of the living creatures, the elders, The angels. When we're prone to think in diminutive ways of the cross, forgetting its grandeur, its accomplishment, its power, then remember what the angels think think of it all and what we will see and sing at a future date when things are clearer. Exalt Christ.
1: This is the only salvation that can be offered. If you do not know him, my call to you today is turn from your sin and turn to Christ. Find life in him. Our Father, Father, we have prayed for your word to be effective, and once again we pray and ask the same.
0: O Father, grant, as you have promised, that your word not return void. Do your work. In those who may not know you, may they come to saving faith. And in those who do know you, that they find encouragement for the journey and rest in what Christ has done. May our faith, Lord, rest not in our ability or our own faith but rather in the indestructibility, the might of our Savior. In whose name we pray now. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response.